Warning, this issue of Nil Desperandum is rated R for language. Nil Desperandum 13, Corseting, by Brandon Blackburn. Brandon Blackburn has had short stories published in Artifice, The Boston Literary Magazine, Skeeve, Rose and Thorn Journal, and Haunted, an anthology from Pine Hill Press. He holds an M.A. in English from the University at Albany, S.U.N.Y. His master's thesis on Thoreau was published by Lambert Academic Press. Our narrator is the most excellent and reliable Ken Stofler, host of The Flatus Show. Corseting by Brandon Blackburn Around midnight, pedestrians cutting through Olmsted Park in North Boston would sometimes look up to the west facade of the Feniston building, where a few lights and a few lonely offices on the 11th floor were still burning, their luminescence quickly swallowed by the cloying night. In one of these offices, Jim Stamen, creative director for Beantown Fashion, sat behind a small desk crowded with drafts of articles and photo sets, looking at the taskbar at the bottom of his PC screen, which gave the time as 11.53 p.m. Marlene, his editor-in-chief, sat across the desk from him, where she had sat for most of the evening, mouth tight, eyes bright but emotionless, just as they had been for as long as Jim had known her. She was considering an objection Jim had just made, but considered it only momentarily before shaking her head and resuming her argument. All I'm saying, she said, is that I think a trip to the gym is in order for this young lady. Jim sighed. The entire point of this layout was to show normal people choosing simple pieces and looking great. These women aren't supermodels. They're supposed to look a little fuller. His PC monitor was turned so that Marlene could see it and dispute Jim's most recent photo shoot. The screen showed a young woman with long, damp, blonde hair leaning back against the front door to 27, a popular bar in Mission Hill. Her eyes looked off camera. Her crimson lips were curled into a flirtatious smirk. She wore jewelry by Catherine Rapetti, a corset by Nanette Lapore, jeans by Generic Denim, and heels by John Fluvog. It was a great outfit for just under $1,000, an outfit a normal person, like the 130-pound blonde in the photo, could wear confidently. That, Jim repeated, is the point. But look, Marlene repeated, her eyes squinting, at this roll of fat. She pointed to the one-inch gap where the corset had squeezed fat down and the tight jeans had squeezed fat up into a small roll. Why do we pay for Photoshop if we don't use it to fix these things? There's nothing to fix. The point is, she's a normal girl. Do you get the idea of the layout? I still say either she goes to the gym or we Photoshop her pictures. Is it too late to use a different model? The point is, she's not a fucking model. This was the last exchange that Jim remembered from that night. 
He awoke the next morning in blood-stained sheets and a vomit-soaked mattress with the unshakable suspicion that it was Father's Day. It may have been the infomercial for golf clubs that played repeatedly on the TV in the living room while he slept fitfully in his bedroom that compelled him to find his cell phone and planner. But in any case, after correlating the date on his cell phone with his calendar, he confirmed his suspicion and realized that he would have to call home sometime that day. It was nearly noon. He'd have to make the call soon, or his parents might think something was wrong. Nothing was wrong, just another Sunday morning after another suicide attempt. Ash, Jim's gray cat, was scratching at the bedroom door and meowing pitifully. Jim had forgotten to dump out a week's worth of cat food like he told himself he would the next time he tried to off himself. Dropping his planner back to the bedroom floor, he started to flip instead through a mental Rolodex until he came to the note left there months ago regarding cat food in relation to suicide. He mentally highlighted this prior mental note. His head was pounding, so was his heart. There were stabbing pains in his stomach. Nevertheless, he resolved to get up and feed Ash breakfast. As he slid off the bed to his knees, he broke into an ominously heavy sweat. He gathered his strength and stood up, but quickly had to catch himself from falling. Hand pressed against the wall to support himself, he twisted his arms around to examine the long cuts across his left and right forearms and wrists. He counted 19 cuts in all, but most were innocuously shallow. Still, his arms felt tender and swollen as if they were sunburned. He made a new mental note to throw out his box cutter for fear of tetanus and buy a new clean switchblade or something. Memory returned to him slowly and he began to recall the fistful of diet pills he had chased with a fifth and a half of scotch the night before. The first fifth had been a bottle of Glen Fittage, 15 years single malt, a gift from his mother the previous Christmas. He couldn't remember what the second bottle had been. Ash began to purr as Jim emerged from the bedroom and made his unsteady way to the kitchen. The cat fell silent once Jim had presented him with fancy feast and a fresh bowl of water. Jim highlighted an old mental note regarding the purchase of cat dishes so that he could stop feeding Ash out of a not inexpensive set of Fairgrick salad bowls. But the morning after a suicide attempt is not a time for reflection or introspection. It's a time for rest and recovery. Jim moved to the living room and lay down on his long black leather sofa. He was sweating worse now, his heart still under the spell of the pills, even though he now remembered vomiting most of them up. He was trembling, a full body shake that was a combination of alcohol withdrawal and dangerous levels of whatever was in the pills, caffeine probably, and ephedra and guarana. Looking down at his lacerated arms, he made a mental note to wear long, tight-fitting sleeves to work the next day. He wanted to sleep, but couldn't. Still, it felt like waking from a dream when a few hours later he reached over to his coffee table to flip open his chirruping cell phone. His voice sounded groggy as it said, hello. His voice sounded, in fact, as though it were in a separate room from his body. Maybe a room somewhere on the other side of town. Hello? Answered his father's voice. Hey, happy Father's Day. Thanks. Both men, one sitting, legs propped on an ottoman in a four-bedroom, Mediterranean-style home in Santa Barbara, California. The other, lying on a leather sofa in a one-bedroom, 
$2,300 per month plus utilities apartment in Boston, caked blood staining his white tank top, cleared their throats and waited. Tom Watson had time to sink a 19-foot putt on Jim Sr.'s 42-inch TV as both men waited for this strange entity, this conversation, to pick up momentum and move itself along. Televised applause filling the silence beneath his father's peaceful groaning into the phone brought Jim Jr. back to alertness, and he asked, So how's your father's day been? Do you have anything special planned today? No, not really. Your mother and I and your sister tried the new Vietnamese place in Hope Ranch, and they got me a couple of ties. Sounds nice. Yeah, it was good. They had really nice koi guan. The mint and basil they used was very fresh. That's the secret. It was very nice. Good, good. Anything new with you? Jim Jr. let out a sort of long, groaning sigh as though racking his brain for any event of any significance in the past six months or so before saying, No, not really. Just working a lot. Sounds good. Yeah. How's work? Good. Really good. Well, Jim Sr. said, It's good you enjoy your work. Yeah, definitely. Jim Jr. wished he weren't out of cigarettes. He wiped sweat from his forehead. How's the weather there? Pretty hot. It really feels like summer. Yeah, it's been unseasonably warm here, too. While Jim Sr. described the heat and humidity of recent weeks in Santa Barbara and the rate at which grass had been growing on his front lawn, his son picked a thick notebook up off the coffee table. Jim Jr. called this notebook his book of lies and used it to record ideas, poetry, passing thoughts, drawings, and dreams. As his father went on to describe the merits of his newly purchased gas-powered weed whacker, he flipped through his book of lies to find a few blank pages sandwiched between a three-page speculation that perhaps Jesus Christ was a woman and a sketch of a side-zipped checked miniskirt with runching at the waist and wrote, I had a dream last night. A woman with long black hair, a great distance away from me across an immense dark plain. She wore a long flowing white dress and she was dancing ecstatically, wildly, the white cloth of her dress spinning out around her. There were dark clouds in the sky above her and lightning struck the ground all around her, inches from her feet, sometimes striking the ground where her bare feet had been only a moment before. She was unconcerned, unworried. She laughed loudly, head tilted backward towards the dark sky, and then she began to scream a kind of primal chant, like the rapturous supplication of a Native American rain dance. Jimmy? Jim Sr. interjected. Are you still there? Yeah, of course, Jim Jr. said. You were saying the mice are pretty bad this year. Jim Sr. confirmed this and suspiciously resumed his narrative while his son continued to write. This ability of Jim Jr.'s had frustrated his parents and a string of ex-boyfriends for years. It was the ability to hear and remember every word someone was trying to say to him, while at the same time utterly ignoring them the way a stenographer hears but doesn't listen. As his father lamented that he might have to call the exterminator again before the end of summer, Jim Jr. was writing, I'm relatively sure the dancing girl's dress had an empire waist and tie back. Jim Jr. closed the book of lies. Well, I think I'm going to get some lunch, he said. Happy Father's Day. Well, thanks. Guess I'll talk to you later. I love you. Love you too. Jim Jr. began coughing as he dropped his cell phone to the floor. 
After a long coughing spell, he wiped a trickle of blood from his chin, then made his way over to the stereo as the opening notes of Ryanin began to play through wireless speakers. He walked back across the room and lay face down on the sofa. Not for the first time, he mused that in the 21st century, after eliminating God and all the old tablets of laws, humanity had created a world in which our only natural instinct is self-destruction. Drop him in the middle of a Chinese buffet and he would eschew all necessary nutrients and cram fat and sugar down his throat until his heart burst. Show him a road leading away from his family's Pacific home, and he would drive away from them until he ran into the next ocean. Introduce him to a man who even for a moment made him feel desired or cared for, and he would tolerate this man's abusive jealousy until his entire life had been usurped. His email accounts hacked, his body bruised, his mind on the brink of murderous insanity. Ash jumped onto Jim's back, interrupting his thoughts, and began to groom himself. Jim shook his head, trying to clear his mind, and prayed to fall asleep. In the meanwhile, he prepared mental notes for a proposal a new photo shoot. He was meeting with Marlene in the morning and needed some solid ideas. He visualized himself in Marlene's office, saying to her, A brunette model, size zero, a nature shot. She'll be standing on a big plane with storm clouds in the distance. We can Photoshop those in. I'm thinking something by BCBG. Something white and flowing with an empire waist. She'll be smiling boldly like she couldn't care less if it starts to storm. Unfazable. Untouchable. Above it all, completely unrestricted. Free. Okay, Marlene would say. I have several questions. In the abrupt way cats do everything, Ash leapt from Jim's back and attacked a toy mouse in the corner of the room. Watching his cat attempt to destroy his toy, Jim's mind performed some kind of dark room inversion, and he found himself thinking not about destruction but about photography, art, and creation. His eyes widened as he realized that in the post-God, post-natural law 21st century, our only natural instinct is not self-destruction, but creation. As Ash continued to play at hunting and killing in a universe in which these activities were, for the domesticated feline, atavistic, Jim flipped open his book of lies and began to write furiously. Life he wrote, is a game without rules. The only rule you must follow to participate in the game of life is the time-worn injunction against suicide. But if you so choose, you can do so much more. He reasoned that if he had been given the space and strength to create distance thousands of miles and, and years of silence between himself and his family, then distance could be erased too, just by choosing. He made a mental note to call his dad later that night. Despite the pain in his chest, he smiled as he rolled onto his side. He smiled despite desperately wanting a cigarette and despite already dreading presenting a dream about a dancing girl to Marlene as though it were a serious fashion concept. She would have a lot of questions. He wondered if he would have any answers besides because. We're human and we're free and we have the space and strength to create something beautiful. A picture, even a picture in a fashion magazine, could be worth a thousand words. And if it was really good, maybe it could even be worth just one. He would probably dodge Marlene's questions and just keep insisting. She'll be dancing among lightning bolts just like all the rest of us, completely unrestricted. Free. They call me free. Call me a fool. Hey, yeah. They call me free.
Mill Desperandum is edited and published by Jim Phillips. Audio production in conjunction with the Bear Crawling Nation. Engineer Hugh Morrison and executive producer Charles McFall. And of course, Nil Desperandum is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So I pray you may, but you don't stay. She just came to wash to the